Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have uh, the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. That may seem like a weird thing to, to do, but uh, it, it makes a lot more sense when you realize that, that we unabashedly love God's Word around here. We believe that God uses it for all kinds of super important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, the mission of this church, full stop, is to point people to Jesus, to help them know God, to help them be shaped by God. And if the, the Bible is the primary tool by which he does that, we look for every way possible to get your nose in a Bible on a regular basis around here. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, you don't have access to one, take that one home and start reading it. I'll count it as the biggest win this week, I promise. All right, uh, Romans chapter 7. So we're deep now into a series that we're calling Justin Justifier. The, the artwork was on the screen just saying, go, it looked really good. Uh, there it is again. Um, it's a slow walk through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, otherwise known as the book of Romans, right? Uh, the book of Romans. And, and Romans, in a nutshell, is a missionary support letter. That's what Romans is. Paul doesn't have a connection yet with the church at Rome. He, he's never been there by the point of the letters writing. He's eventually going to spend a lot of time in Rome under arrest there on multiple occasions. Uh, but at the point of this letters being written, uh, Paul has no connection with the, the church at Rome yet. But he's heard some good things. God's been working absolutely powerfully through this church. And he sees them as an incredibly strategic ally for his own calling. Later in chapter 15, Paul's going to tell him explicitly that he's asking for their help to help him take the gospel onto Spain. All right? So Rome is like in between where Paul's currently at near uh, Israel uh, or at least Greece during that time. Or There's some debate. Uh, we think maybe he was in Corinth when he wrote this letter. All right? So Rome is like a hop, skip, and a jump on his way to Spain. And, and God's just moving there powerfully. And, and Paul wants some help taking the gospel where the gospel has not been yet by the point of the, the letter's writing. So he writes to them to cast this absolutely massive vision to call them to see for themselves the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up he and others to take that gospel to all peoples. That's the point of the book of Romans. Paul's missionary letter, though, is also his magnum opus. It is his great work. It's a masterpiece of logical argument for the cause of the gospel. He really nailed that casting vision part. He's better at the writing thing than I am and well, the picture that we've been trying to use, that we keep throwing out there week after week after week, to try to, to wrap our heads around what Paul is doing here, the picture that we keep throwing out is that of a skyscraper, right? Why a skyscraper? Well, because skyscrapers are a feat of engineering. There's, there's planning, there's intentionality, there, you don't just rush to the top. There's, there's, a, there's a trajectory of design, and you build this piece, and then you build this piece, and then you build this piece. And if you don't get each piece right along the way, your tower, your skyscraper is not going to last very long if it ever actually gets all the way to your point, right? And so Paul builds this masterpiece argument that moves peace by peace, by peace, by peace. And what would probably seem counterintuitive to a lot of people, Paul starts his gospel argument not by, not by holding up God's law, God's commands, and saying, here's the list, everybody failed, shame on you. That's, that's usually the way we tend to, to have the, the religious conversation, right? But that's not what, where Paul starts. Paul starts by pointing to the Creator. 
He starts by pointing to the beauty and the majesty, majesty and the goodness of this creator. And he points to how we as creation, all men as creation, react and respond to this creator. See, long, long, long before God's law ever comes into the picture, Paul tells us in chapter 1 of Romans that all men are without excuse because all men have rejected the good and wise creator king. That's where Paul starts his gospel skyscraper. Rebellion is buried all the way down deep at the core of who we are as we try to usurp the true king and make every attempt to place ourselves on the throne. That's the true beginning of the gospel, that there is an infinite separation between God and man long before the law ever comes into the picture. And through the first few chapters of Romans, if you're paying attention, there's a pretty significant question that begins to arise. Well, well why did God give us the law then? Like if, if, we don't, if we don't really need the law to, 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 to be separated from God, if we're separated before the law comes in, then, then why does God even give us the law? And, and through the first few chapters of the book of Romans, if you're not paying attention to uh, the nuances of theology that Paul is beginning to, to lay out, you have every reason to believe that the law itself, that God's commands, might actually be a bad thing. Like that the commands themselves are evil harmful his his tone is generally negative through the first you know seven chapters of this book so so why did god give us the law i mean paul's argued by this point that one of the reasons that god gave us the law was to actually elevate the heinousness of our sin to to move it from an internal posture of rebellion to outright transgression a willing and defiant step across a known line He's also made it clear by this point that, that sinful hearts placed under the burden of the law, well, they not only deserve death, but they actually produce death. Like fruit on a tree, sin leads to more sin, which leads to more sin, and on and on it goes. And then last week, if you remember, last week we celebrated that as Christians we're now dead to the law. Like we got to celebrate that we have cast off our old spouse it's not exactly a good way to celebrate the law, is it? We're free to be married to another. In the law, great. And so the question persists, right? Is the law itself bad? If, if everything that we can point to when it comes to the law is this negative thing and this negative thing and this negative thing, like, like would it just be better if God had never given us the law in the first place? Like, that seems like a pretty good option. Why don't we go with that? God, why did you do this? Why did you give us the law? Anybody think that Paul sees this question coming and already has an answer for it? Yeah, yeah, he does. Look at verse 7 with me. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So just like in the last few weeks, Paul introduces a new logic into his gospel skyscraper that needs to be immediately, quickly, uh, emphatically rebuked, right? That, that's, what, that's what's going on here. He introduces a new frame, a new layer of logic for the purposes of tearing it apart. For the purposes of proving it wrong. And so the answer to the, is the law itself evil question from Paul, his answer is absolutely not, and shame on you for asking. That's his point. 
It's inconceivable to him. And not in the weird, incorrect Princess Bride way. The actual inconceivable. He can't even think of it. May it never be, he says. But here's the thing. You need a clear reason why it's inconceivable or else you're just dodging the question. Right? It's one thing to slough off the question. Oh, may it never be. But if you don't actually have a reason why it may never be, well, you're just evading something. So if the law elevates the heinousness of our sin, if the law brings with it more and more and more death, then how in the world could the law ever actually be seen as good? Well, look at what Paul says next. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, excuse me, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Okay, so Paul says that if it weren't for the law, if it weren't for God's good commands, that he would never know what sin actually is. He didn't say that he doesn't have sin. He says that he wouldn't know what it was. Rebellion against God existed in Paul's heart long before the law was given, long before he ever knew the law, but it lays dead, he says. Another way we, we, another way we could phrase that is that it would lay dormant. Sin lay dormant and unaroused before the law. But then the law came. Then the law came. Paul heard the law, was taught the law, and it seized the opportunity to act on that indwelling rebellion. Like a wolf springing up that you thought was asleep. It bared its teeth. It leapt up and attacked. And Paul illustrates this little truth by pointing to the tenth commandment, covetousness. What in the world is covetousness? Like those of you who don't, didn't grow up with a church background, that's a weird word, right? What is covetousness? What, is, what does it mean to covet? And why would God command against it? It's an internal, greedy posture that sees what others have and connives to get it for itself. That's covetous, coveting. It's a side-eyed glance that thinks that you're more deserving than your neighbor and that maybe, just maybe, it's time to set some things right. Paul says that his indwelling sin heard the command not to covet and went, oh yeah? Well, we'll just see about that. Here's all the coveting then. I'll be as coveting as I can be. Let's see what that little God over there has to say about that. That indwelling rebellion rooted deep down in Paul's heart that lay dormant. You thought it was dead. You thought it was asleep. You, you thought it had nothing to attack and then it was awakened and pricked by the law. It lashed out in defiance towards God. That's another negative thing, right? Like I thought we were trying to prove why the law was good. Like how, how could the law be seen as good if it's the fuel by which the, the, the indwelling sin in, in Paul's heart goes crazy? Like how could that possibly be seen as good? And, and Paul, Paul's posture here though is thankfulness. He's, he's grateful for the law. Why? Because it's through the law, he says, 
that sin is most clearly seen. It's through the law that sin is most clearly seen, that that the separation between he and God is most clearly on display. That separation has always been there since the garden, but now, now it's obvious. And something must be done about it, shouldn't it? You can't ignore it. You can't escape it. It's right in front of your face. We're not talking about dormancy here. It's awake and it's bearing its teeth. Something must be done. Look at verse 9. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin, uh, excuse me, let me start over. I once was alive from the, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Verse 10. That the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, so there's a little bit of debate here, but we think, we think that Paul is referencing the time in his life before he knew what the law was. There's a couple of other options out there, a couple of other, other opinions. Uh, the, ma- the majority of scholarship points to that and goes, well, there was this time in Paul's life before he knew the law. Paul grew up as a good little Jewish boy. Religious education was a part of that upbringing, right? And just like your kids, there are probably moments where Paul had this, uh, where the reality of the world just kind of smacked him awake, right? Have you watched that happen in your own kids over time? They've got this childish way about them, and then they they really understand the reality of the world around them, and and it changes them. Growing up, Paul was, he was taught God's law, he was taught about the life that it promised. Do this and you will live, the law says. But there's a couple of different ways that we could look at the word live there. One of the angles, not certainly not all of the angles, not even the best angle, but one of the angles that we could look at God's law and is that we could hold up God's law and say that the world works better when we follow this. Does anybody really want to argue with that logic like like don't murder don't steal don't take other people's stuff like we teach that morality to kindergartners right it's basic level stuff of course the world works better that way the world obviously works better when people don't murder each other does anybody want to like saw that limb off that coveting thing that we talked about a while ago that didn't sound so nice but how you doing on that Anybody batting a thousand this morning on the kindergarten level morality? Me neither? If not, why not? I mean, is it just a willpower issue or have you also figured out yet that you're in over your head here? So, So we're not achieving the life that the law promised either, are we? Do this and you will live. But there's also a second weightier, far more eternal sense to the word live. Growing up, Paul was taught the law and he was taught about the life that it promised. But young Paul eventually got to the point where he put the pieces together and said, you know what, I think God is actually expecting me to be obedient to this. Uh Uh-oh. 
These aren't just mere suggestions for living as his own little king in his own little kingdom. These were commands, life and death commands from the actual king. So even though the law was given as good, and so even though the law promised life, in that moment of realization, Paul's sin seized, and that's the word he keeps using, it seized the opportunity to run towards deception and death. When Paul grasped the impossible burden of the law, that presumption of life immediately was replaced by a realization of death. The law is holy, though. The the commandment is holy and righteous and good. They're a reflection of God's own good character. But Paul's indwelling rebellion used that good, life-giving law to produce something evil. Sin and death. Look at verse 13. Just in case there's still any confusion in you about this, Paul's going to slam that door shut. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, the same, I love this, Paul's emphatic. By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All right, so you'll hear us talking here from time to time about idolatry, the, the sinful worship of false gods, right? And, and idolatry is not a word that gets used much in our culture. It's a religious word. It's a vocabulary word that normally just exists in the church. No one outside the church really cares about that word, right? And most of the time, when people think of the word idolatry, immediately what they picture in their head is somebody bowing down to little carved statues, right? Statues of wood or rock or some fine metal like gold or something. That's certainly a form of idolatry. That's the worship of a false god. But the most basic, basic definition of idolatry is the corrupted use of created things to worship the imagined god of self rather than God. That's the most basic definition of idolatry. The worship of ourselves through created things rather than the creator who gave us those created things. That's idolatry. And so more often than not, more often than not, that, that idol is not some weird statue and, and it's not even some terrible thing that everybody in the room looks down on and says, shame on that. It's normally, most often, a good thing a good thing that we've somehow twisted or overemphasized beyond its design in order to make much of ourselves. That's an idol. Common examples that get thrown around here from time to time, love, sex, money, power, family, food, work. Every one of those things are good, God-given gifts to a world that needs to know the good giver. All of those things are good things. When used correctly, they glorify God. But idolatry, though, is when we take those good things and we use them outside of their design because we're looking to them to be functional saviors, right? Instead of God, we look to those things to satisfy us or to to rescue us or to glorify us. What Paul is talking about here in verse 13 the same thing. In fact, it it may even be the prime example. Sin twists the good, life-giving law for wicked purposes, idolatrous purposes. 
Sin takes the, the good thing that God has given to us and he uses it to produce more sin. And so here, Paul says he, he is thankful for the law because when sin gets a hold of the law, well, it shows itself to be sinful beyond measure, he says. It's beyond obvious. And now we can do something about it. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay, so starting in verse 14 and then carrying on through the rest of this chapter, Paul shifts from uh, speaking in the past tense to speaking to in the present tense. So why does that matter? Because Paul is going to pull back the curtain and let us in, have us, let us have a little peek into his inner struggle with sin. He's going to let us see how he struggles against his sin. Struggle is the right word because this is a fight, guys. It's a fight. He's one verse removed. Back in verse 12, he was pointing out the goodness of the law, right? But here in verse 14, he points out that the law is spiritual while he is only physical. In other words, like he, his fleshly self can't live up to the spiritual demands of the law. He doesn't have it in him to get all the way there. There's not enough gas in the tank. As frustrating as that is, verse 15 is where the bottom actually drops out. Paul actually gets personal. He says, I don't understand my own actions. Because he's confused. I, I don't get it. Why is Paul frustrated and confused? Because he constantly ends up doing the very thing he hates. He walks willingly back into his sin. Father Jesus, have you ever had moments like that? Are we honest enough in this room to, to fess up to those? You know that God's commands are good. You know that, that freedom is found in Christ. You know what you're going to get when you walk down that road again because it's what you always get when you walk down that road, but yet here we are. God, why do I keep doing this? Why? Paul sees his sin. Paul hates his sin. But then there's these other times, sadly, that he doesn't seem to hate it so much. What is going on? I mean, I thought we were free, right? Haven't we been celebrating that throughout the book of Romans so far? I thought we were gloriously transferred from team Adam to team Jesus. I thought we were given new hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone that the law was written on instead of external tablets. Like, haven't we been celebrating all these things? What is the deal? Why do we still struggle so desperately with our sin? I mean, we're not talking about the occasional slip up here. Paul seems to be painting a picture of a lifelong internal war. And this conflict in Paul 
has actually led a lot of people to wonder if he's actually even a Christian when he's writing this. Because you see, like true believers, like the real Christians in the room, they don't struggle with this stuff anymore. I'm glad you laughed. That's the wrong view. There are some others. There are some others who come and say, no, 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 no. Paul's a Christian. He's just not a very mature one yet. You see, when, when, as Paul grows up in the faith, he'll, he'll learn to step away from those, from those lesser sins of his past and he'll begin to walk in fullness of Christian maturity. You just keep plugging away, Paul. Good job. God will get you there one of these days. And this one text, this handful of verses in the middle of Romans chapter 7 have actually become a massive source of disagreement and argument amongst the broader Christian world. Whole denominations have been birthed out of disagreement about this text. The holiness movement of the mid-19th century, uh, largely Methodism at the time, it pointed to this text and said that, that mature Christians, mature followers of Jesus are those who have received two blessings of grace. The first one was, uh, was when, obviously when you were saved, right? But then there's a second receiving of grace. And that's when you begin to walk in maturity. That's when you begin to walk without sin. That's what the holiness movement was about. They, they pointed to this text and, ar- and argued, literally argued, that Paul hadn't received that second blessing yet. The holiness movement also gave birth to the earliest forms of Pentecostalism. You see this two-blessing thing? fleshed out there too usually with the argument that that the proof of that second blessing is speaking in tongues right but what if what if what if Paul's struggle with sin is not because he's not a Christian yet and it's not because he hasn't reached spiritual maturity yet what if what if Paul's desperate lifelong struggle against sin actually flows out of the reality that he is actually a mature follower of Jesus what if his maturity is the thing that causes the fight? When we become a Christian, God, God gives us a new heart that begins growing in Christ-likeness, but our old sinful selves, they still war against us, right? Our, our flesh doesn't give up so easily. But notice the clear distinction here, because it's massive and important. Notice the clear distinction here that we're talking about something that Paul doesn't want to do anymore. Multiple times throughout the course of this letter, Paul has argued that that those who don't know Jesus yet, those who have not been awakened to the beauty of Jesus by the intentional work of Jesus, they don't want Jesus. They don't want God. Before salvation, Jesus is not attractive to them. He's repulsive. He's the enemy. He's the one trying to take his throne back. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But here in chapter 7, Paul is talking about fighting against his sinfulness, waging war against it. So something has changed, right? What changed? The theological word that we use is regeneration. In John chapter 3, Jesus just called it being born again. Being born again. Before we, are given, uh, before we were given new hearts, our, our view of sin was never at odds with our actions. Not once. We never went, you know what? That was a bad thing. I really displeased God there. We actually loved it. 
but now. But now it's distasteful to us. Now we see our sin and we hate our sin. And listen, pastorally speaking, this is, a, this is actually a key marker for counseling. Like if you come to me and say, Stephen, I'm just so frustrated by this sin. I'm trying so hard, but it's just got me beat. I keep failing this way and this way. Like, like, like there may be some real legitimate, simple steps that need to be put in place. We can talk about that. We can, we can talk about practical tips to fight this sin better and fight that sin better. But on the inside, I'm doing cartwheels. You want to know why? Because the subtle shift, the subtle shift between reveling in your sin and hating your sin actually has an eternal divide between it. It's massive. I am far more concerned with the person who sees their sin, understands that it's sin, and just doesn't care. Far more concerned with them. That's an indication of a calloused heart. That is the moment when your church leaders start wondering if a person is actually saved or not. Have you, have you seen what's going on with so-and-so? Should we press in there? Yeah, I think we ought to press in there. Just call a little sidebar here. This is, this is why church discipline is actually such an incredibly necessary thing. It's because a constant posture of I don't care is an indication of an eternally significant problem. And so in love, we press in. So follower of Jesus, never, ever fear struggling with your sin. Never fear fighting desperately against your sin. You're in the same boat as the Apostle Paul and every other Christian who's ever tried to faithfully follow Jesus. Is it hard? Absolutely. I'll save you a seat. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law, and here Paul uses the same vocabulary word, but he's not talking about God's law, he's talking about a principle, a rule, all right? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, for I, but I see in my members, my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? All right, Paul says here that he has these two forces that are just constantly struggling for power within him. His old sinful nature that always wants to exalt itself and serve itself and his new heart that wants to desire now for some reason out of nowhere and now desires to please God. He's got these two wills in his heart that are always fighting against each other. He knows that God is sanctifying him, but he longs so desperately for the day when the struggle will be over. How about you? He longs for the day that he could be forever rid of his old sinful self, and so he asks a question that he already knows the answer to, and so do you. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? What's the, Bible, what's the Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? Look at verse 25. 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Jesus. Jesus is the promised, finished, to the... Jesus has promised to finish the good work that he began in Paul, and he will bring it about on the day of completion, all right? And until then, until then, Paul's content with the fight. Not, he's not giving up, he's not giving in, but, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. So, so what do we do with our, our text this morning, like, how, how do we respond to God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is the same thing we say every week. You press into God. Why is that the same response every week? Because it's the needed response. We press into God. We, we do that by repenting of sin and by leaning into what God reveals about himself in Romans chapter 7. The one who gave you the law for your good. Not so that you could succeed in fulfilling it, but precisely because he knew you couldn't. And that needed to happen that way. He gave it to reveal the massive divide that once existed between you and him and to reveal your need for an actual savior rather than a functional one. So we lean in this morning to the God who, who loved you and pursued you long before you were even aware of it. Or wanted it. You lean into the God who has promised to bring you to completion just like Paul. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. But listen, I think you can respond to God's word too. You do that by meeting Jesus, the one who pursues you even this morning. He pursues you right now. Do you see your sin? Do you see the separation that exists between you and God? The Bible teaches that recognizing that separation is no accident. That's something you're, you don't stumble on. It's something you're awakened to. Do you see the separation that exists between you and God this morning? You know what the fix is? The fix is that Jesus died on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to pay the debt of the sin that you owe to bridge that gap of separation, to reconcile these two enemy parties. So you can respond to God's word this morning by repenting of sin and calling on Jesus as Lord in faith of that finished work this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front here if somebody wants some help walking through that, that next step. I'd love to point you in the right direction on that, but let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans 7. A weighty passage indeed. But for those of us in here who know you, who have been forever changed by you, who still fight with sin every day, even though it's something we don't even want to do anymore, we find ourselves still doing it. God, it's also kind of a breath of fresh air. Because we know we're not alone. We know that all those who walked faithfully before us battled the same fight. And all those who come after will battle as well. God created us a hate for our sin. 
where that has not changed yet. May it change this morning. Let us see it and despise it. See that it robs us of everything we want to pursue. And may we press in well. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you awaken hearts to know? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear this morning? God, would you save people today? Would people, would somebody in this room hear the gospel for the first time and respond in kind? God, we don't want to we don't want to build a set of rules or laws that, that say this is what a Christian looks like. But God, we, we do want to hate our sin. So show us where that is. As you continue to mature us, just like Paul, would you bring to mind even new things this morning? whether we've been doing the Christian thing for a week or 90 years, you are still bringing us about to the day of completion. You are faithful, and in you we trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.